Hit me with the horns, 20. Uh, 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 uh. Here we go now. Here we go now. Here we go now. Here we go now. Check it out. <laughs> it was Capital City Podcast. I'm your host, Capital J, alongside my main man, DL Glass. Now, tonight, we're introducing a mega superstar producer. Goes by the name of Fanatic. Uh-huh. And before we get into the interview, I'm just going to let you know ahead of time, we had some technical difficulties when we recorded this. So right now, we give you this intro, but we're going to go straight into the interview. But we had to do some editing because we had technical difficulties about halfway through. So we're going to pick it up from the start, the restart that we did. Cool. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the Fanatic episode. I got to UNCG in 1990, and I noticed everybody was hanging right. around this store. And I said, why does every why are all these dudes hanging around this store? They'd be out front <laughs> kicking freestyles and mm-hmm. everything. I'm like, what? what's so special about this store? And um, my man B. Chill told me that mm-hmm. that he, um, he was like, hey, man, Fanatic, Ski, Miss Master D., those dudes, man, you mm. know. So I get to the store and it's like, oh, okay. So that's Fanatic in there. Everybody, you know. Before I knew who Fanatic was, I knew that this dude in this store must be somebody special because everybody in Greensboro seemed to want to be around this guy. I was I turned into one of them dudes, took some beats up there on a on a cassette tape. That I made off the little mm-hmm. Casio keyboard where I would, uh, you know, loop a beat on there and then add a break beat to it. And and he invited me to come through the crib. And for the first time in my life, I saw the SP-1200. And he let me borrow mm-hmm. a record way back yeah. then. I tell you, I still got that record if you ever want it back. It was a meters record. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And um, you mm-hmm. told us something about Beach Hill early on. As I, I know that he would want to hear this in person. Can you repeat what you said about B. Chill? Yes. Um, B. Chill was actually my cousin. And I didn't find that out until much later. But he was my cousin. I would always see B. Chill in New York City when we would go back and forth to New York. And I would be always be like, why is B. Chill in New York City? Why am I always running into him in New York City? And he probably was either doing some music or he had family up there. But he would always be in New York City. And I would always see him in Times Square every time we go up there. But uh, B. Chill was one of the first artists in Greensboro. He was in a group called the Fresh Express. And he was one of the first artists to make a record, an actual 12-inch single of their song, a rap record. And B. Chill and then T. Johnson with uh, um, with his group and then uh, Centripetal Force with Jocko. So those guys inspired us, the Busy Boys, me and Ski and Eli and Dana, that we could actually make a record. Seeing them make a record and having a record out was like a big deal. And they, they inspired us and gave us the confidence that you could actually make a record and put it out. Because before then, we were just making mixtapes and we would put our songs on the tape. But they actually had vinyl and made a record. So they were a big inspiration to the possibilities, um, a big inspiration for us and the possibilities of what you could do with hip hop and how far you could go. So, um, those are some of our first influences in the city of actually making music. But um, 
yeah, that store was New York Sounds, I believe. And that's where we all met. That's how we ended up connecting with Roland and Payroll Records. But it was, um, that was the hangout where everybody would come and we would talk about hip hop and make and share each other's music. And, and just, uh, that's where we met Roland and we started Payroll Records. And the Busy Boys were the first group to uh, come out um, on Payroll Records. And that was uh, me, Ski, uh, Dana. Eli was man. was the manager, basically, and um, we uh, then came, of course, with Nyborn and Versatility, um, and Entice uh, would take it to the stage and Bad Rep. So and Capone. So we had a we had a, that was the foundation where everybody was at. Um, I was producing all of those records. Um, at the time, I didn't even know it was called production. I didn't know I was actually producing. But uh, when Ski joined our group, I was rapping at first. Dana Mitchell, or Dana Lucci, basically introduced me to hip hop. I would go pick him up from high school, and he would uh, he we would go to the Greensboro Record Center. We would buy the uh, Def Jam records and the Profile records and the Sleeping Bag records. We didn't know who any of these groups were, but they were always great records every time we would get them. So it would be Teela Rock or it would be LL Cool J or Run DMC, and all the records were very hot. So Dana kind of introduced me to that whole thing. His cousin Mark used to send them mixtapes from New York City, a Red Alert, and Molly Maul and Mr. Magic. And so when we would get those mixtapes, uh, he would just introduce me to hip hop, New York hip hop at the time, and it had a huge influence on me as a as a musician. And I started programming beats and buying drum machines. And me and Dana just worked on hip hop all the time. And then we ran into Ski and through Eli. And Ski was just, uh, he was just amazing and turned me on to that whole boogie down production thing. He was big on, he was big on Steady B and everything that that Philly thing was doing with the Hilltop Hustler with Cool C and Steady B and all of them. And, he was big on Karis One and Boogie Down Productions, and when he introduced me to that Criminal Mind album, it changed my whole life. I didn't understand it at the time because it was so simplistic, but Karis One was just such an amazing MC that uh, it just became so infectious that I really got into it, and uh, I really he became the MC. I was making the beats, and Dana was the DJ, and then the next thing you know, we just we just dove dove in and just started making New York uh, hip hop as the Busy Boy. Hey, that's what's up, man. Now I don't know how much of this. Um, I'm a I'm a kid deal when we get off. You know that, right? <laughs> Come on, man. I mean, I mean, we we try here. I don't know if it has the same flavor. I, I know, uh, I know. It's it coming off the first time. Yeah, but but you know, we covered a lot of ground. But yeah, we just, did. Uh, so the payroll era happened. Mm-hmm. We talked about how how that movement hit its peak and you said you guys were the the first real record outside of New York artists to get spin, right? On New York radio yeah. like yeah. that at the time. Yeah. So, you know, which yeah, was the first. that wasn't happening. Yeah, they were very segregated in what they were playing outside of New York at the time. It was like, if you weren't from New York, you weren't getting records played on there. But we had been studying New York rap for so long that when we were creating our music, it always had a New York feel to it. 
Uh, we weren't making music like uh, MC Shy D out of Atlanta or the Two Loud Crew out of uh, Miami. We were more or less making uh, New York records. And when Biz, Salt and Pepper, Heavy D, Dana Dane, all of them used to come down to do shows down there, we would be their opening act. We were like the biggest act, uh, the biggest hip hop acts around Greensboro at the time. And we would do, we would open for those guys. And then when we would hang out with them afterwards, they were just so blown away by what we were doing coming from where we were at. You know, they really embraced us. They really showed us a lot about showmanship and they showed us how Biz was like, yeah, like my mentor. Biz used to just sit for hours in the room and just give me all kinds of game on sampling records and how to arrange a record as a producer, the equipment they were using. And we just struck up a friendship for years where he would always mentor me on uh, making records. And it was just good to see, I know for him, to see me going from sitting in that hotel room and they're just having these long conversations to me finally having my moment as a producer and them knowing us. So they were very, very instrumental in our growth. And that's why we were able to get our records played in New York because they sounded like New York records. When I thought about hip hop, I thought a lot about the Juice Crew and the way Bismarck used to put records together. They were, they were made Ooh. for Ooh. the DJ. Ooh, yeah. You know, they had yeah. the, the, the way the way that, that it would break down right before the hook came. You know, yeah, I studied that all that. It started off when you, when you listen to those intros to make the music with the mouth bears and all those records like that, like you hear that, mm-hmm. you would immediately run to the dance floor because you, you knew the record, the way it would wind up before it would drop. And he did that same thing. And if you listen to make the music with your mouth bears or you listen to uh, go off, um, from Bismarcky, and then you listen to Crush on You, you can see the influence that he had on me on how to start that record off. That when people hear that, it's almost like they're calling to the dance floor and everybody uh, goes crazy. Yeah, you and get so four bars. Stuff like that. Yeah, four bars yeah. or eight yeah. bars to get yourself together before before it really happens. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 So I, I hear that. I hear that influence for sure. Now the early days of payroll, you know, I don't think I don't think we missed, but maybe the first what ten, fifteen. So, right. you know, we we run through the mm-hmm. early days of payroll real fast. Um, the early days okay. of payroll record, it was you, uh, Ski, Dana, Busy Boys. Then you had mm-hmm. Nyborn, mm-hmm. and then Tice. Like for me, that's 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 the first wave of payroll records, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, so once again, tell us about about that era, how that era came to an end. Because when I when I got to Greensboro in nineteen ninety, I think y'all were on the second wave of payroll. You know, it's when Omniscience and Dizzy and all right. of them are are coming mm-hmm. on to the scene. The first era right. though, you know, how do, how does this thing end? Because you know, by the time I get there, Nyborn's on Next Plateau and Tice is on Wild Pitch. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, right. yeah. Give well, us a rundown. Well, when that happened, um, so so the Busy Boys had taken off. We had the Hype Time record that was being played in New York. We came back with Hold the Laughter after that. Um, Nyborn had just had the Versatility record out that I had produced. They were playing it on Yo MTV Raps, which was like a major thing. Uh, when we go to New York, Marley Ma would play uh, 
um, high time, um, um, no, Mal would play dropping it, and Red Alert would be playing versatility. So we were getting our records played in New York. Uh, a lot of the kids that went to A and T would go home and they would hear um, our records being played on the radio. So when they came back and spread the word, now we went from just being in the community and with the high school kids uh, being known to now the colleges are embracing us now and we're doing homecomings and we're spending a lot of time on A&T and UNCG's campus and people are just hearing the music um, um, and really get into it. So now Dizzy, Dizzy D and um, uh, KSB Fresh and Mark Sparks come on the scene and because they are with the college crowd. So now they're a part of payroll now with the group Bad Rep. And then I produced the record, Nothing Can Stop Us Now for them. And so they're doing shows over there. And so now our following is even growing even bigger. And as we're waiting for this deal, we're about to get signed to Next Plateau, I mean, uh, to Atlantic Records. And as we're about to get signed to Atlantic Records, uh, there's a cross-collateralization clause because they only wanted to sign the Busy Boys, but Roland wanted them to sign all the groups. And the cross-collateralization clause was basically like, uh, if you got to sign one of them, you got to sign, you got to sign all of them. And so, um, he didn't want to do the deal because of that reason. And so, um, you know, we were just ended up in a waiting, a holding pattern where nothing was happening and we weren't going to do the deal. And so, of course, when success and fame and things happen, people start trying to take credit for things. People think they're the reason why egos, everybody doesn't handle success the same way. And so we ended up, you know, at odds and we ended up breaking up. And so when we broke up, it was amazing because once we, uh, when you think about it, it wasn't amazing that we broke up, but when you think about that, when we broke up, um, we had Ski under there. At that time, I had taught Ski how to produce records. I had taught uh, Naborn how to produce records and I had taught Mark Sparks how to produce records. And so when we came out of that camp, right, um, basically, um, he went on to produce Dead Presidents for Jay-Z and Camp Low. So he's very instrumental in Jay-Z basically coming into the game. Um, and Tice ended up doing the first record with RZA and Method Man. And that was a huge record with the Hushers tip on Wild Pitch Records. Nabon um, um, was working with um, Master P. Uh, Mark Sparks was producing Grand Poobah's first solo record coming out of Brand Nubian. Uh, he also produced Salt and Pepper Shoot, which reinvented their whole career. And he was also working with Special Ed, Redhead Kingpin, and all these different people. So uh, when you look at all of that coming out of one camp, all that music and all that production was under one house of payroll. And this is before uh, different camps had blown up, like in Miami, like in Houston, like in Philly. Um, like in St. Louis, all of this coming out of one camp in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we work with so many hip hop icons and legends and being very instrumental at a pivotal point in their career. It just amazes me what could have been had we stayed together. But we all went our separate ways and um, we all went to New York after that and went on to do, you know, great things. Speaking of Mars Sparks, man, I get he gave me this cassette tape back when he was in Greensboro one weekend working at Ultimate Studios. He was sitting mm -hmm. in the studio and he said, hey, man, I got this cat named Anthony Hamilton. This is around the time he produced that Grand Poobah, I like it joint. And he had flipped mm -hmm. that sample. 
and done this this, this incredible work with Mark Sparks. And man, that song was called Settle Down. I put it on one of my mixtapes. Oh, I remember was, that. I yeah, remember that. Yeah, I want to settle wow. down with yeah. you. Woo! Man. And, and Anthony's stuff at that time was so raw and so different. The combination and the chemistry of Anthony and, and Mark working together it was just so different. And um, he found Anthony. He basically introduced him to everybody and everybody wanted to sign him when they came to New York. They wanted Mark to work on all these different records. And it was just uh, a real, a real, um, like that, that was probably some of the best music Anthony had ever made when he was working with Mark because they just had this chemistry and Mark just had this vision for Anthony and his sound. He had such a different sound than everybody else. And, um, you know, like I said, Mark Mark Sparks never really gets the full credit that he deserves as a producer because of the things that that he was able to create and and reinvent these people and introduce them to the industry as artists. Just a really good, dope visionary man, really crazy man. A transition. So, um, you know, he just never really gets enough credit for his contribution, and he just had this whole sound like. And Mark could always just just uh he could get people excited and get people to, to buy into what he was doing. So he always had a crew of people who just believed in what he was doing. And so he's uh, just really, really dope. But we all came from the same camp. And when we tell, when we do this documentary and we tell the story, it's going to blow people away that these unknown people that we were, we touched so many of these icons during that, that moment. So, and we had all at that time probably moved to New York City. So everybody was living in New York City or coming back and forth to New York and whatnot. But it was just a great time. And when you look at that, and you're like, damn, they all came from one label. Imagine had we put all of that music, kept all that music in house and kept the blow up artists in the North Carolina area. It would have been crazy, man. Oh, my goodness. And you even had Omniscious on deck for the second round, man. Uh, oh, forgot about that, too. I forgot uh, about that, too, because uh, he introduced me to Omniscious. And I started producing Omniscience. And, of course, we ended up signing with Vincent Herbert and Electra Records. And he was just doing some raw stuff, a new music seminar, um, the source rhyme of the month. It was just like, uh, it was just a really great time for us. And we were just doing something that was so different than what everybody else was doing. And it was at the time when not too many cities uh, or uh, areas had blew up like that. This was before the Philly movement. This is before what was happening in Florida. This is before what was happening in Houston, St. Louis. It was happening right here in Greensboro that all these people were coming from this area and we were producing hip-hop at such a high level. Hey Amen. And I'm, I'm glad I got there when I got there, man. Got to see a lot of this. <laughs> Great you know. time. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was a good time, man. Um, so, you know, I remember I remember the um, the Ultimate Studios I remember you had a, mm-hmm. you know, you did a lot of work out of there. Did you do any? Of the, did you do a, take part in a lot of the remix work that they were doing too? That's how I got down with them. I was doing uh, some of those funky mixes that they were putting out. That's how I met them. And when I started working in there, and uh, I met Chuck, and I met Brad, and Les, uh, they just were surprised at the production that I was doing, and so they ended up. Uh, I convinced him to start a record label. And so it was so crazy. At that time, we had a pressing plant. 
we had a record label and we had a studio. All and right, had the money. So, yeah. So so it's like everything that you needed to to from start to scratch was right all under one roof, right? And they believed in us. We did the group, the funky leftovers, which the missus was the ghostwriter for. Um, we did the leftovers with Billy Devour and T Love. And we had a record that took off locally. They acquired the cap. They played on the radio. We did the video. Pendulum Records wanted to sign it. Uh, of course, with uh, the Ultimax, um, the owners of Ultimax being very naive to how the record business works, they were wanted so much more for the deal than what they were offering. And so we ended up um, not doing the deal with them. And then that period ended, but it was a great period where we were just in there every day, just making music around the clock. Imagine having a 24 track uh, console and two inch tape where you're just in there making music 24 hours a day. And you just got girls running through there. You're making music in there. Everything that you're doing in there um, is just like people coming through there all the time, just adding to the creativity and the vibe there. So it was just a, a magical time. Uh, to be working out of that studio. Yeah, that spot was state of the art. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I was I was mind blown when I would walk in there. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Polo was right across the the walkway. He had his studio, Obia, right across the walkway. So not only could you create the records and get the records pressed there, but then. Um, you, you could get it right to Polo and Polo would play your records and K Nice would play your records on the radio that week. So we had everything locked and how we were putting out records. So we were white labeling records. Then we had the Zakar record, um, Cincy that blew up. We got that signed. So it was just a really great creative time where we were just making music and getting it out as soon as we would make it. And that's like round two. Or act yeah. two, of, you know, that's that's a new a new peak, you know what I mean? Right. So right. yeah, 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 yeah. So so tell me, um, how do you go from from that to crush on you? Well, Eli at the time was managing me, and we were partner, we were business partners, so we were just uh, running back and forth to New York at the time. I was working at Super Eight as a third shift desk clerk, and Eli was. Um, Eli was working at a telemarketing thing. So we always had a job, right? But the thing about it, we would have these things we call pie jobs. And a pie job is a job where it's easy as pie. Like you could quit tomorrow and and just go to New York or whatever and right. come back and get another easy job like that. So we were always working, but we never let the job supersede what we were doing in music. So the, the music always was in the forefront. It always was a thing of importance. So we would never get this great job that we couldn't quit. We would always get some BS job that if we had to quit tomorrow because we got the car to be in New York, we would just go. And so we would drive back and forth to New York, sleeping on couches, sleeping in cars, couch surfing, whatever. Uh, we met a dude by the name of Sincere Thompson who worked at uh, Letcher Records. Yeah, I know Sincere. Island Records. He worked at Island, yes. Sincere worked at Island Records at the time. And him being from New York, he knew everybody. So he knew Un. And me and Eli, he told us that, we told him that uh, Little Kim was working on a solo record. He was like, oh yeah, Un manages her. So he was like, if you see Un, just tell him uh, you know me and tell him you got beats that you want to play for Little Kim. 
And at the time, everybody was recording at the Hip Factory. So you could pull up to the Hip Factory at 5 o'clock on 34th Street. 34th Street. No, 44th Street. And you could see uh, Devontae would have, and Jodeci would have one room studio locked down. Puffy would have the other room locked down. Uh, Wyclef would have a room locked down. Everybody had, everybody that was somebody were working out of the Hip Factory. Mariah Carey was in there, everybody. So if you just pulled up in front of the Hip Factory or waited outside the Hip Factory at five o'clock, you would see the black SUVs pull up and it'd be like a who's who going into the studio. And it just so happened one of those days we saw Biggie and them going in there. So we went back the very next day around the same time. And as they got out the car, I started talking to Un. I recognized him, started talking to him, told him about Sincere. He told us to come upstairs. We played tracks for Biggie, and two days later, we were in the studio for like probably a week making beats and working with Biggie, Mace, and Cameron, and Little Steve and Little Kim, just working on their records. And uh, that just happened to be one of the records that we recorded. That was one of the tracks. And I had that track, the crushing new track, for two years and couldn't sell it. Like nobody would buy the track, everybody just passed on the track. And I think the only person that got the track was dope and wanted it was Entice. And I had just given her a tape of it probably like a couple of weeks before I ended up selling it to Little Kim. And it's so funny, after I sold the track and the record hit, uh, all the A&Rs would always, I'd meet with, would be like, play me something like uh, that Crush on You track. You got anything like that? That right. track is dope. And I was like, yeah, I, I played you that track two years ago. Uh, right. You know. <laughs> um, it's just, it, it, it was just interesting that Biggie had the foresight to see what that that track was, and it was just uh, he put the whole record together. So on that record, I'm working with Biggie, I'm working with Kim, I'm working with Cameron, and so everybody was just in a great creative space at the height of their career, really doing great music, and that's why that record came out like it did. Nice, wow. nice. How much direction do you give someone like Biggie? Uh, none. He's giving you direction. Like that's the first time I, I realized that Biggie was an executive and a producer because he really understood the vision for the record, and he already he under. I guess from working with Puffy, he learned so much about putting records together in terms of like the popular loops, the hooks, and what they were talking about and things like that. So he had a whole vision for the record. And the thing about it is I had never really seen him like that because I don't even think Lil' Kim liked the track. That's mm. why on the album, it's just Lil' C rapping on the on the original version on the album. And then uh, when they put the album out, it stalled at first. And then DJ started playing Crush On You. And that's when Biggie made Kim go back in the studio and record a verse of Crush On You. And now it's like her biggest song ever. So... You know, he sometimes the producer and the executive producer have a vision that sometimes the artist can't see. And that was the case with that particular record. And it was so funny, after the record, after I had done the record and we had come back to North Carolina, it was probably about six months. I didn't hear anything. And then Little Seas called me one day and was like, yo, you, we got one. Just a hit record. They're playing it everywhere. Wow. And every single time I would get in the car in Greensboro, Every day I would get in the car. As soon as I get in the car, that record would come on the radio. And I was like, yo, why is it every time I get in the car, this record starts playing? And then they were playing it in the tunnel in New York, and people were calling me and telling me they were playing the record. So it just took off after that. So, 
so, just a magical moment, man. So I've heard a couple artists talk about their first time um, having that moment that you just spoke of. How did that feel for mm-hmm. you? How how did that moment feel for you? Uh, it was just, it was just, uh, it was kind of surreal because nobody knew me because when we went up to do the video, we thought we were just going to show up and they were going to shoot our scene and we were going to break out, not knowing that like at that time, like we're the low man on the program, but we're just the producer. We're not the artist. They had Aaliyah come through there and Luke, Luke Skywalker, all these, Luke, Luke the Campbell, all these people were coming through there. They were in the video, the lot. Right. And so we're thinking we're just going to show up and shoot. And that wasn't the case. And so eventually we left and went to an industry party and missed the entire video. Oh, wow. So had we been in the video, we would have gotten more exposure and people would have known us, but nobody knew we really produced the record. So what was happening is like you were going to a party and they'd be playing the record and you'd be standing in the corner and it just was like this vibe. You would see everybody dan- dancing to the record, <laughs> but nobody in the room knew that you did the record. Right. So it was just a really interesting thing to see that. And, um, and then, you know, People in Greensboro knew that I had produced the record, so it felt good to finally uh, get that that really big hit record for the first time, and, and people knowing that you had been trying to do this for such a long time, and then you finally have your moment, and you know people that had doubted you, and you had left the camp, and you were doing your own thing, and you know from the time we left payroll to when press on you happened, it was. It was. It might have been six, seven years, maybe even longer, that it actually happened. And a lot of people that started off with payroll, you know, gave up and stopped doing music. And you know, we just stuck it out and kept going, and never really thought of doing anything else but music. And what I found in this business, if you hang around long enough, you'll get your shot. You just have to stay in it, and you have to just keep doing it. And eventually you know, the universe will open up and allow you to have that opportunity to do your thing. And hopefully you're growing as an artist, as a producer. One thing about me, I've always tried to challenge myself to grow as a producer and and create outside the box and not just do what I had always been doing and just study, just become a fan of music more than anything, not just a fan of hip hop, just a fan of music, period. And knowing that every icon that you know they infused some things in their music that separated them from everybody else. And it became uh, accepted and, and appreciated by a mass audience because there was an infusion in there. So I've always tried to keep growing as a producer and infuse other genres together, to make something new and just to do something different. And then also too, you don't have to love everything that's going on in, in the music, but you have to appreciate, I'm a fan of creative expression. Anybody that can take music out of their head and turn it into song, to me, I'm a fan of that because I know how difficult that is to do that. And when it happens, it's a magical moment. So for me, I'm just a fan of uh, being able to express yourself through music. So I love the new stuff that the artists are doing. I can appreciate it for what it is. Not necessarily the type of music that I want to do, but just that creative process is something that I'm a fan of anybody that can create. Uh, I'm a fan of that. Yeah. I learned a lot from, from all you guys at some point. And uh, that's why I used to like spending so much time with Dana. Cause uh, he had, yeah. that, he yeah. had that creative spirit too. You know, Dana for people that don't know, that's mixed master D who's DJing for the busy boys. Yes. Who's also a phenomenal mm-hmm. producer. 
and and yeah. and we all developed this love for the SP. I still got an SP at the house. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And matter that of fact, whole thing happened because Eddie F and them came down there. We did a we did a show at MC Square with Heavy D and the Boys, and we always had a drum machine on stage with us, but. You know, we had like the Cassie or something that had like limited sampling time, like five seconds of sampling time. And then we saw Eddie F at an SB1200 up there. We had 12 seconds of sampling time. He had all these samples in the drum machine also. And so he turned me on to the SB1200. And I was one of the first ones in Greensboro to get it. And then, of course, turned Dana and everybody everybody else on to it, um, to the SB1200. But Dana... If you did music in Greensboro, and I don't care who you are, if you did music in Greensboro, you had to come through Dana's studio. His studio was like the the foundation for everything. So if you was trying to work on music, you came through there, you recorded in his studio, you learned how to produce in there, you hung out there, you spent a lot of time there. So I think everybody that ever did music had to come through his studio and create in his studio and learn from him as well and just be inspired by what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, he was the man. He was definitely mm-hmm. the man, man. I I spent a lot of time sitting on that bed watching him do stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, you just, you, you, you just yeah, you just take a seat and just soak in the hip hop, <laughs> man. The room was just Yeah. That was a legendary spot. It was like man. a museum. It, was, it, it, it had everything. You had right on posters all over the wall. He had a video archive of all kinds of hip hop stuff. He was hip hop and just like immersed in it. And I was just like, I don't know how his mom took it because there was always somebody there 24 hours a day at his house, either creating or just hanging out in there and just doing and experiencing hip hop. And he just had a huge impact on so many of us. Uh, I hate that he's gone because this is the time where you really appreciate his impact. Like I wouldn't even be doing music if it wasn't for him. Like, he opened the door for me, opened my whole world, turned me on to hip-hop, and just this passion and love and drive for it and understanding how much time you had to put into it. Like, a lot of my development came from working in his house, you know, and just spending countless hours to the wee hours of the morning just making music in his house. And he and I just experimenting and trying all kinds of new music and sampling and beats and everything like that so i wouldn't be doing none of this if it wasn't for him yeah man shout out shout out dana lucci man around that time yes. when y'all y'all did that video that's that's still on youtube now he recorded a video on one of my beats <laughs> too uh i did the, the beat for super mm-hmm. fever oh wow <laughs> i didn't know that I yeah i know that wow yep yep More so world. so he made me official <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. Love yeah. that guy, man. But but yeah, that created that creativity and that love for the SP is something that, that everybody shared and and when uh-huh. I listen as a as a producer as well, when I listen, I can hear the things that everybody shares, the little tricks that oh, you yeah. learn and, and this and that, like, you know, the way everything's chopped. I hear familiarity yeah. between everybody. And yeah, that dirty, that dirty eight bit sampler on the SB twelve hundred, and that that became my signature with the SB twelve hundred. Those dirty drums. So I was more commercial in the music that I was choosing. Right, it wasn't like that hardcore gritty shit. 
Like I could do that, but that wasn't really my sound. My sound has always been commercial, but I always have the dirty drums up under it. And to this day, I still use the SB 1200 on a lot of the, the, the music that I make now, just as the foundation with those dirty drums and whatnot. So. Speaking speaking of commercial music, you know, my boy, mm-hmm. I'm over at my boy's house now. I swear to God, this is one week ago. He said, man, mm-hmm. you know what I'm on now, man? I went back and listened to Michael Jackson. And man, <laughs> have you ever heard this song? And he played Heaven Can Wait. <laughs> I was like, what you mean I've ever heard that song? You know what I'm saying? Wow. <laughs> I was like, you know who produced wow. that song? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's fanatic right Crazy. there. Are you telling me you used the Crazy. SP for Heaven Can Wait? Yes. What? Drums, all the drums up under there. Yes. Um, we Everything that I was doing, the Beyonce record I used it on, just everything that I was doing, I would sample those drums from there because they would be real dirty. Nice. Um, but yeah, nice. Heaven Can Wait was it was was a was a moment and just just growing up watching Michael Jackson and just seeing him evolve into a solo artist and then this icon and then all of a sudden you get the call is just crazy. Like shout out to Kenny Quiller and, and Charlotte who made that opportunity happen with Teddy Riley and to work with Teddy Riley because he is an icon and you we've heard so much of his music and the impact that he had. So to actually be in there working with him and him respecting you to and what you do and what you're bringing to to his sound, so just to work with him was was a was a big deal, also. That's awesome, man. Right. So, so how right. do you, how do you shop beats to Michael Jackson? <laughs> right. Uh, we had we I had worked with a couple of producers on that record and songwriters on that record, and when I when we finished with it, I was like, yo, this sounds like it gives me a vibe like Lady in My Life. And I knew Michael had done a record where he was singing about a woman in a long time. He was doing a lot of those humanitarian records like Free Willy and, and Heal the World and things like that. So I was like, I want to make a Michael Jackson record that is a staple, almost like uh, an Ozzy Brothers record is a staple with flow songs, flow music in the black community where when you're playing flow music to get with your woman, when you're playing classic flow music, Michael Jackson has one of those records and he had done that in a while. And so we had tried to put it on Babyface's brother, Kaban Edmonds, and he was like, y'all are trying to make me sound like Michael Jackson. I'm not Michael Jackson. I got my own sound. If you want Michael Jackson, you should go find Michael Jackson. And he was just joking around when he said that, but the light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, you know what? He's right. I was like, we need to get this record to Michael Jackson. And so I just started playing Six Degrees of Separation, and I got to Kenny Quiller, who happened to be Teddy Riley's assistant, and they happened to be working on Michael Jackson. Sent the record to him, and like literally two weeks later, he was like, you guys got to come down to Miami this weekend. Michael's ready to cut the record. Heaven can wait. And it just blew me away. That, um, but, but it helped me also realize that all these artists are just people at the end of the day. They're mm-hmm. all six degrees of separation from each other. So if you really think about it, and you really go through your roller decks and start thinking about the people that you know, you know somebody that knows somebody that knows that person. And that's how we got to him. And ever since then, that's always been my approach in this music business is just to always play six degrees of separation and you can get to anybody. You know, there's always gatekeepers and things like that, but somebody is next to that person and has their ear. And so that's how we ended up getting a record to him. And the next thing you know, Michael Jackson is standing like two feet in front of me having a conversation with me. And like, I'm like, 
hospitality is just like the most surreal experience that, that you could ever witness is just Michael Jackson talking to you. So I was just like, oh, wow, I, I can't believe it. I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina. This doesn't happen. Say that, you know, man. It, it, went down. <laughs> it went down, man. Did he float in the room or did he walk in like a regular man? Yeah, basically because, <laughs> yeah, the dude has some sort of, uh, you could you could feel that he wasn't of this earth. It was just like right. this weird aura in the room when he was there. It just felt very spiritual when he was in there working, and it was just like uh, I never experienced nothing like that before. Wow, that's amazing! Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Yes, I've heard that about Michael Jackson, and I've heard that about Prince. Prince. Mm-hmm. You know, too. same thing with Prince too. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. Prince. The only man I could say is cute. <laughs> I wasn't afraid and to met, say he I was met cute. Prince. <laughs> I met him also, <laughs> and he gives you that same vibe. Right. I met him multiple times in my career. Uh, when I did the Beyonce record, he told uh, he told me at that time that that was his favorite record right now, and he played it for Beyonce in her um, in her rehearsals for the Grammys. He had taught the band the record, and they played the song. So just for him to admire your record to the point that he wants to play on it, and I met him with Shelby J before, and he's just. Uh, He's got this vibe. Both of them had this vibe, right? They just don't feel like they're from here, you know. It's just, just really weird, man. Right. Really weird with those guys. Right. right. Hey, you know, you funny know. thing about Prince, man. I, I, I never met him in person, but I, I, I was on the phone with him before, and oh wow, he just so he was remarkably cool and down to earth. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Like yeah, both as, of them. yeah, both yeah. of them. I yeah, I never got a both. chance to 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 meet Michael Jackson, but or talk to him, but but I actually got a chance to talk to Prince, and I was I was amazed yeah. at how cool he was. Yeah, very very. Both of those guys are very humble in their conversation, like especially Michael Jackson. Like he's so sincere, so humble. Like it just it just you could just feel it in his conversation. I was like, yo, it's so crazy how misunderstood you are because like if people had the the opportunity to spend time with you and just have a conversation with you, you would, you would feel something so different about him that you were like, so this is definitely not the pe- the person that the media and people, um, uh, you know, what they, what they describe when they see, when they talk about you, it, it's not that it's something so genuine and so, so different. It just blew me away. I was like, Oh wow. Mm-hmm. It was like, I never experienced anything like this before. Michael Jackson from Gary, Indiana, man. Right. Very related. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, right. yeah. At the end <laughs> right. of the day, he's a right. kid from Gary. Yes. Right. See, see that little right. white house they right. came out of. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah he right. never strayed, but you don't stray, but so far. Hmm. Uh, so tell me right. this. As time moves on, you know, you had a chance to produce all these other different people. Tell us on... Uh, like what's what's been some of your best experiences in the studio? Like who 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 was your favorite person to be in the studio with? I gotta say Beyonce because that was the first time I actually would, the 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 artist was hands on with everything that was going on with the record because when they sent me the record because first of all when I got her the record when I sent her the record I didn't hear from her for about six or seven months I didn't even know she wrote a song to it. And then out of the blue, they called me at like two o'clock in the morning one night. I guess they were in LA and they called me. I was in New York and they're like, Beyonce will be there tomorrow at the hit factory to mix the record. And I was like, what record? So 
like, uh, she did a record, she did a song to one of your tracks. And so they sent me the files. And when I'm listening to, to the session, you know, I just hear, I got one version. When I get to the studio, she's already comped the vocals herself. Hmm. She's very hands on, on, you know, where the guitars are sitting. We're having these long, long ass conversations about music and inspirations and things like that. And, where you grew up and what music influenced you. Like, it was just like a real, real, like down to earth, real cool session where I've just never seen the artist be so involved with the record and how we're putting it together. So, you know, they asked me to give her co-production on the record and it wasn't just an ask, like, you know, just some sense of entitlement. It was more or less like she actually really worked on that record in terms of making sure that the vocals sit right and the instruments are sitting in the right place so that you can hear certain parts of the song. And it was just, uh, it was was a collaboration. So just like working with her and spending time with her in the studio was just like really dope to me. And I never experienced that before. Yeah, she, so she earned it. A lot of people don't know, you know, there's so many artists that have everything handed to them and they just do whatever was told. And, you know, you letting people know right now, Beyonce is the real deal. I, I've explained that to a no. lot of people that she is, a, you know, she's not your typical, you know, I haven't been in the studio no. with her, but just even seeing her stage show, I'm like, look, man, Beyonce is different than some of these other artists, man. This right. is, no, this is a bigger pay, level she, of she talent. Attention, yeah. She pays attention to detail with every aspect of everything that she's doing. And I know after I, after we did that record, I would see her at different places in New York. And every time I would see her, like she was just so ingratiating. I don't ingratiating. I don't ingratiating. I don't know what the word is, but she was very happy. Right. You right. She was very happy that we, that we had that moment because she would just embrace me and just, just, you know, just really talk about the record and how dope it was and how it turned out when she won the Grammy that night, she said my name on stage, which blew me away because (laughs) That album had the biggest producers, Scott Storch on down, working on that album. And I'm like probably the lower tier, one of the lower, one of the lesser known producers on that record. And he, he said my name on there. So I know that that record really meant a lot to her uh, by even doing that. And so, and every time she works on the album, she has always reached out to me and asked me, did I have anything? But, you know, it's always hard to work on a Beyonce album because you never know how she's coming. So it's like, uh, you know, she you think she's going this way and then she's going something totally. And she and she changes direction because Beyonce is the type of person that she'll have a direction for an album, but she'll lock in with a producer. And if they do three or four songs, she'll change the entire direction of the album. So I have so many records that I've worked on with her that are still haven't come out or she started on and didn't finish it or change the direction and things like that also too. But she just, uh, one of those artists is always reinventing her sound and herself every time she comes out. It's very, that's very rare for artists. So to be able to experience that, that we're all getting to see that. I mean, the, the new record was damn near uh, a dance music house album or whatever, which takes us back to our roots at A&T and, and, and UNCG when, they would have the pre-dawn till 6 a.m. Two to six. Two to six. And dance. Yeah. Hey, that's where All I cut my teeth right there like, the two to six. Yeah. The two to six. And I was like, yo, all of this stuff reminds me of that era when house music was so much in uh, 
it was so much a part of the music scene and hip hop and black culture during that time. And so, uh, you know, it's just great to see artists um, like her that are always coming out different every time they come out. So working with her was probably the best experience that I ever had in the studio. Nice. That's nice. dope. How'd you prepare when you knew you were leaving New York to fly to L.A. to be in the studio with Beyonce? Like, what, what's that mental space like? Well, she came to New York, and we actually worked in the hip factory. Oh, sorry. And okay. for me, she, she called me the night before. They called me the night before to come in there and work with her. So I didn't even really have time to prepare to mentally uh, prepare for it. I didn't know what to expect. Okay. And we ended up doing two days in the session. So the first day was, you know, was like, it was, a, it, was, it was a little awkward because we didn't really know each other. But then the second day is when she really opened up and we just talked for hours and worked for hours. I probably was in there with her. It was just the engineer, me and her, and, and in the studio for probably about, I want to say, eight or nine hours. So imagine oh. just being in a room with Beyonce for eight or nine hours where you're having conversation and working on music with her. Is just like a great experience that you'll probably never forget. Right. Now I'm right. from North Carolina, so um, is she as thick as she look on TV <laughs> in person? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, it's for my fans. I can't even remember, man. That, that was so. That was so long ago. I can't even remember. Uh, uh, you want to be respectful? I know. She, I get it. <laughs> but, I get it. but of course she's the queen she, she she of course she was pretty and you know it, it was uh she's everything that you know that you expect when you're working with an artist like that hey when um when when the album wins a grammy and you produce on it do you receive an award yes you get a you get a plaque as a producer you don't actually get the statue you get a plaque as a producer the only get the only time the producer gets the actual uh, statue is when you win uh, record of the year or song of the year. Okay, you don't necessarily get it for album of the year, and they probably do that because there's so many producers on an album. Beyonce could have an album where there's 20 different producers on the album, and I guess the Grammys don't want to have to, you know, give out 20 statues or whatever like that. So you get a plaque, but it's still you're awarded as a producer for that album that wins the album of the year and things like that. Nice. Nice. Well, congratulations. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the first, first, pre- we got another first, I'm the first producer to win a Grammy from North Carolina. Hey. Whoa. That was, uh, that, that, that meant something. Yes, yes, indeed. It means something. Yeah. Yep. Congratulations on yeah. that. You know, mm-hmm. um, man, I was, oh, I know where I was headed with this. All right. Now, this is what I noticed. I've known a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of artistic people who, um, you know, make mm-hmm. music. And, mm-hmm. you know, anytime I've ever mentioned you, I say, you know, Fanatic is more eclectic than most. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you, you're going to put your, your fingers in more pots than most people. Mm-hmm. And that's showing up more recently. I've always like you know how how you know you got Outkast and Big Boy is right. Big Boy, but when mm. you look at Andre three thousand, you know that there's more on right. more meat on the bone. Definitely. You know what I mean, right? Definitely. And I've always Definitely. looked at you like that too. You know, I said, "Hey, Fanatic is is 
more than the busy boys. And then when you know crush on you, oh, like, right, you know right, fanatics right. more than crush right. on you. You know what I'm saying? Right. Fanatics right. more than heaven right. can wait. I appreciate that. Right. Right. I always I appreciate that. Yeah. I always. I always got that vibe. And um and now I see that kind of coming full circle, with um mm-hmm. you know with the different lanes that you've been in. So uh, Linux. Right mm-hmm. on. So tell us tell us a little bit about right. about your your more recent work and and the direction that you've been heading and what took you there. Well, all that came from um I I went to an all white school growing up and being turned on to rock and pop and classic rock and all this stuff. So. I'm, I'm living over by Dudley, but my mom teaches at Greensboro Day School. So I'm going to a private school and learning about classic rock and stuff from my friends at, at, at the private school. So I'm learning about that music there and then coming home and listening to soul music and listening to uh, hip hop on the radio. And then uh, my mom was listening to soft rock, driving to school every day. So I'm getting exposed to all these different genres of music. And at that time when I'm growing up, all of that stuff is on the pop charts at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you knew about all of these pop artists at the same time you would know about all these soul artists. And right. and so when you're learning all of that, and it, um, you're like, that helped me later on when I started doing, when you're sampling records, because now you know what records were big hit records back in the day that weren't soul records or R&B records, you know, what rock records and, and pop records were were, uh, were big hits also. And just studying those artists, because during that time in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there were so many iconic artists that came out that were like great express themselves, like Prince and Michael Jackson, Madonna, Boy George, uh, George Michaels. I'm still um, listening you know, to the police right thing. now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Police and the Sting, uh, singing the police and all those different artists just expressing themselves and incorporating fashion and incorporating just uh, being eclectic and having their own identity. So that's always lived in me. And I study, I, that's all I do is study, study, study. Like I study all of these classic artists and their journey and, and their expression and how they infuse all those things together with fashion and music and just their own identity, David Bowie, all these different people. So, um, where I saw uh, the pandemic happen and I wanted to get into this space of really becoming an artist because so many times I had been the producer of the artist and I would produce the record and I had the vision for the artist and it would be time to go get the record deal or we get the record deal. And there's so many ups and downs in the music. So many broken promises, so many you get signed, you get dropped, all these different things that happen. And I would always see that the artist would always lose faith in themselves or their confidence after it didn't happen when it was supposed to happen. But I would always just keep going. So we'd be on to the next artist or I'd start producing somebody else or just keep going. And so I was like, I'm no longer going to put myself in the place where I'm putting my destiny in somebody else's hands that doesn't want it is, or doesn't have the mental toughness that I have to just keep going. And I have been doing it so long and, you know, we experienced so many ups and downs and getting knocked down, but we just kept going. And that's how I ended up having the success that I did. So when the pandemic happened, I was like, this is my chance to get into the artist space. And I started producing my own music and singing my, I learned how to sing, I learned how to record myself, I learned how to play. And I started coming up with this fusion of rock and hip hop 
and I would mix it together and just create these 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 records. And so that allowed me to get in the space of of you know dressing the way I dress and expressing myself the way I, I express myself musically and all of these different things. And it was just I felt comfortable being different and making music that was different because hip right now the hip hop and R and B lanes are so oversaturated now with artists. Because you know, Kat, when when we were buying records from school kids, it'd be four, three artists that would come out on a Tuesday. Right. You know, when the new music comes out. Now on Friday, there's probably like probably about five hundred new artists that got new music coming out or just established artists putting it's just so much music that comes out now. It's insane. Um, every week. And so many artists. And for some reason, they have segregated black artists to only express themselves in the space of hip-hop and R&B. So you, 90% of the artists that come out are only doing hip-hop and R&B. And just trying to go down that oversaturated lane and trying to express yourself in that same space and their limitations with how people are making music now. Everybody's trying to make something that sounds like something that's already out. Uh, everybody, when we were in the Busy Boys, we were just making music and that felt good and that we thought was good. We weren't necessarily making music to be famous. We weren't making music to, to for uh, for money, for financial gain, none of that stuff. And that's how I create now. And, you know, it's so many artists that go in there with preconceived notions of, we got to make a hit record. We got to... Um, we gotta make. We gotta get rich, and I just feel like all those things will come if you just be authentic to who you are and your creation. And I wish so many black artists would have the opportunity to just create because we never would have seen Andre Three Thousand evolve into what he became had L.A. Reid not and Big Boy not given him the space. To like, okay, you're doing something a little different, a little weird. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's authentic to who you are and where you are in your growth and how you're creating. And if we look back, it's so many artists that were iconic because we allowed them to create in their own space and we just accepted it from D'Angelo to Andre 3000 to uh, um, Kanye West. Just so many artists just doing what they want to do and how they want to express themselves. And I don't think white artists have that same pressure of having to create in this, this little box every single time we come out. I think and every time we do something different, we blow up. Yep, I think that's why that's why Khaled has such a hard time processing Tyler the Creator's success. Right, great example. Yeah. You know, yeah. like like today yeah. he is the example. You know of of that that lost era of just somebody mm-hmm. coming out and being as creative as they want to be, and you know people love it. And Callis just I mean, sitting we, over his scratches head. With, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we saw that with Tribe. When Tribe came out, they were doing something totally different than everybody else uh, uh, during hip hop at that time. We saw Public Enemy do something that was totally different. So, so it was the Flavor Unit doing their thing. Um, we saw it again when Swiss Beats came with his sound mm-hmm. and what they were doing different. We saw it with Primo, um, the Neptunes. Like it, the Neptune, yeah. all of these people that we have seen do something totally different and blow up with it. So I know it's possible that if you give black artists the opportunity to create in a different space, um, that they will be just as innovative because 
there's something in our DNA, right, as black people that we always find a way to overcome a situation of oppression. When you oppress us, we find a way to express ourselves totally different. Where all of the limitations that we face and all the oppression that we face, we always find a way to express ourselves differently than everybody else. And and that's why I was just like, we have these labels have to let black artists create outside of just hip hop and R and B. That's the only way we're gonna find the next Prince. That's the only way we're gonna find the next Michael Jackson. You know, that's the only way we're gonna find the next Jimi Hendrix. It's just allowing black artists to just create. That's how we found Erica Badu. That's how we found D'Angelo. As those guys, those artists were just doing whatever they felt and how they expressed it, and it became a vibe that we all love. And so that's what I'm trying to do with my project. There's not any black artists doing rock and roll right now in that space. And for me, I mean, the last artist that we can look at that probably did that was probably Lenny Kravitz was the last person that was a black artist doing rock and roll at a very high level. And it resonated. That album, the the five album resonated heavily. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. (laughs) Now, Now, mind you, mind you, that was 25 years ago. Right. So how is it that in 25 years we haven't had a black artist really blow up to that magnitude like him or Prince? And before that, it was Prince with with uh, the Purple Rain album, Let's Go Crazy and all that mm-hmm. stuff he was doing. Darling Nikki, so Beautiful you, Ones. Yeah, right. Yes. When you listen to that stuff, it's so innovative and so different, and it's rock and roll. So it's like that was 10 10, 15 years before Lenny Kravitz even got the five. Right, even even Funkadelic. Yeah, even early, you right, listen to early right. Funkadelic, first, you listen to early, Cosmic early, Slop early and stuff Funkadelic. like that. That's straight, mm-hmm. like, it's not like we're we're unfamiliar to this genre. We have done it, and we have done it well. And, um, you know, we recently did a podcast about why is our content so monochromatic right now mm-hmm. when... And, Definitely. And, and you know we come to a conclusion it is because we allowed we we sold it to people who don't understand us right and 100% and, and when you think about it cap look at look at Andre 3000 and hey ya and everything that he was doing it's like every time if you go all the way back to check this out now you go all the way back to little richard Chuck Berry Jimi Hendrix Prince Terrence Trent Darby, Lenny Kravitz, Andre 3000. It's been documented throughout history. Whenever you give a black artist the opportunity to operate in that space, we always do it at the highest level and be iconic. Mm-hmm. When you hear that Funkadelic album and you hear how rock influenced that album is, right? And then you hear Childish Gambino do Wake Up and you hear all that Funkadelic in that whole album, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, Every time we get the opportunity to create in that space, we become iconic. And that's why, and it's, and it's crazy to me that the, 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 the labels are the powers that be own all those pub, all that publishing catalog from all of those artists, control them, make millions of dollars off of it. But yet and still, they give us very few opportunities to sign artists that are doing that type of music that is different like that. And, but, when you look at the the rock genre right now, it's saturated with with white artists that get to do that. And I hear so much 
underground and, and indie rock stuff that is so innovative and different, but they're all white artists that get to create with that, like that, where black artists aren't. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of this group called the Go Team? Yes, exactly. Yes, I have. Right. I got like, one of my Spotify players. Right. And, you know, when I listen to it, I'm like, yo, man, like, like this stuff should be happening. And it makes you kind of wonder if, if like, you know, the excuse you always hear is, well, you know, we sell what people buy. And what my, my, my response to that is, Hey man, we are way more eclectic than as a people than just guns, drugs, sex, Yes. Like, there's way yes. more that we'll that we'll accept on our plate. You have to be willing to put it right. out. And sometimes I wonder is the reason that we're not offered those lanes as much is because it's not destructive to our community. <laughs> uh that 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 there's definitely some conspiracy going on I, about that. To me, I, I believe that to a certain extent also too because when you. When they, because think about it, we created this genre of rock and roll. We created it the time when we were doing it. They said it was the devil's music. They didn't want us doing it. Then Elvis comes along. He does it. Then all of a sudden, they see how much money is in it. He blows up. Now, all these white artists are doing it. We let it go, and we start doing soul music and doo-wop and R&B. And then the British take it and they take it to a whole nother level of doing rock. And since then, it's like we've been etched out of that space. And mm-hmm. I'm like, how do you create it? But then you get moved out of the space and then they become the gatekeepers. And when you look at it, like rock is this right now, but where, 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 like when they create it and they paint the picture of it, where, where are the superstars at? Where is, where is the new Mick Jagger? Where is the new Robert Plant? Where is the new David Bowie? Like, none of that. But you know, black artists, we're so expressive, you know, in our music, with our fashion, our sexuality, all of that, that, you know, if you give us a chance to do that type of music, you'll see the new Prince. You'll see the new uh, 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 Mick Jagger, black Mick Jagger. You'll see the new Jimi Hendrix. All of those artists will come out in us because that's how we express ourselves because we don't just, do the music. We express ourselves in all aspects of that. And the performance, we express it. Look at look at uh, our greatest performers and how we perform our music, how we dress, the sexuality, how innovative and creative we are in writing the lyrics to those types of songs. But like you said, you know, when you start giving us those opportunities, then you start seeing the cream rise to the top. And it's like night and day from what they're doing to what we're doing. And now you basically like giving us the opportunity to validate ourselves and realize, you know, we're different. We're special. We have value. We're worth something. And that can be, you know, very scary to somebody who has controlled how that whole thing works, you know, mm-hmm. for such a long time. That, that first, um, the first nerd album was, was, was a good example Crazy. of that, that hybrid. Crazy. You know, and it, it resonates with us because when we do it, we know how to, to put the right elements into it mm-hmm. so that it's palatable exactly. for our audience. Yes. And, and eclectic and different. Like you ain't seen nothing like that when that came out. It right. came out of the blue and just, and just, just hit it. But, but like I said, my whole thing is to do this type of music. So people of color can see what I'm doing 
and realize like, oh, we can create over in that space. We can color with that with that with that paintbrush. Let's do something like if he can do it, let's do let's do it um, also. So I want young artists to see that and see me successful doing that at a very high level and feel uh, like they can do the same thing because I because I saw Prince and it made me want to you know express myself like that and do that type of music. There's a fusion of so many different things that we do and the sexuality and it is the, the looks and the, the clothes and the girls and all of those different things that made him special. So I want to do the same thing for another generation of musicians and they see it and they believe that they can do it too. Well, let's, um, well, let's plug that work right now then. I mean, you know, for anybody mm-hmm. listening, mm-hmm. we just sat here and talked about it. Tell us the name of the album. Tell us the name of the song so that people can go check this stuff out. You know what's some right. of your yeah, what's some of the things that you're the most proud of? Oh, uh, I uh, you know I I don't even you know when when we do when I do these uh, interviews and podcasts from time to time it's really the only time I really get to reflect on what I've done and and in my career I'm always moving forward to the next hurdle to the next thing that I want to accomplish and the next goal. So I rarely get a chance to sit back and reflect on what I've done and what I'm most proud of and things like that. For me, more than anything, it's just about uh, I'm proud that being in the music business this long, it hasn't destroyed me. I haven't got hooked on drugs. I haven't lost my passion for, for creating music. I haven't got burnt out. I still wake up every day and God sends a melody or music through my head and I find some way to get it out. Because that's the worst thing that could ever happen is that you lose your passion to to create and to make music. And that's something that I'm most proud of, that I still wake up every day with a passion to do this, an optimism to do this. And especially when you're trying to do something different that uh, most people will not get until everybody gets it. And um, that's really hard to do um, in this day and age because you can get discouraged and just quit. And I don't ever want to do that. So I just, I'm just most proud that, you know, God gives me the optimism every day to just keep creating, keep trying, keep um, amassing that following one person at a time to get turned on to your music. And, um, you know, eventually it will happen. And um, my career has always been like that. Just keep going and keep creating and keep inspiring people and being able to have gone through all that BS through my whole career from the Fuji's uh, not giving me credit for killing me softly and that record selling 35 million records to uh, hold up, to, hold to crush up. on you moment. Hold up, give us, give us that story again. <laughs> yeah, rewind. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it tell- did happen. It, it happened. But you got to charge it to the game. I mean, it, I, I, I went over there and produced it. Uh, I met them in Jersey when I first moved to Jersey. I was going to the studio every day with Prizewell. And Wyclef had me programming beats on the SB 1200 for their new album. And at the time, uh, the management that I was working with and the executives I was working with were telling me, don't go back over there unless you get paid. Um, they didn't have the budget at the time, and I didn't go back over there. But I had already laid down a bunch of songs, a bunch of tracks, right? Just drum tracks on the SB1200. And next thing you know, I hear on the radio, my beat from the SB1200 
and Wycliffe playing bass over it and Lion, Lauren Hill singing Killing Me Softly. And um, I never got credit for it. I never got paid for it. At the time, just being very naive and not suing Sony or suing them for it or whatever like that. Uh, but And then the record selling 35 million copies. But it's still, you know, I could be bitter from that. I could want to quit the music business from that. But I get joy in the fact that um, it still touched that record. is their biggest record that they ever made. And it still touches people to this day. And people still dance to it. People still appreciate it. People still love that record. And at the end of the day, that was my job. My job as a, as a as a vessel is to get the music out that he sends to me. God sends you the music, get the music out and make people feel something, make them feel good, make them reflect on a great time in their life. And I was a part of that record. So, you know, yeah, I cringe sometimes. I'm in the grocery store and in the dentist's office and it comes over the little loudspeaker. You're hearing hung up there and I'm like, Somebody's getting a check right now, and it ain't me. But, yeah, but at boy. At the end of the day, <laughs> that hurts. But at the end of the day, uh, it didn't break me, and it didn't crush me, and I'm still creating, and I'm still, um, you know, doing innovative stuff that, you know, didn't have to happen. So, so you know, you kind of charge the game. Everybody, I'm sure, has has a horror story in their career where they didn't get credited for something, for something that they contributed to that ended up being very successful, but it happens to everybody. So I'm no different. And, um, I just, I'm just happy that I just keep creating, man. You can, you yeah. can have a big moment. I have my crush on you moment. So, you know, it's all good. Yeah, I know. I know. I know that feeling. I, uh, you, you mentioned yeah. sincere Thompson earlier, right? Now he was mm-hmm. working for Motown when Erica Badu came out. And I, I, I did a remix for On and On. But I oh, sampled wow. the Luther Vandross Promise Me uh, and oh, sent wow. the remix in. And uh-huh. <laughs> But I know he was also doing some stuff with Capone and Noriega. And then when they dropped yeah. um, the Closer remix, I noticed they, there's wow. a remix now. And it got the same feat that I sent in for the Erica Badu wow. remix for On wow. and On. Wow. Now, I can't say for sure. <laughs> You know, I can't say for sure uh-huh. that, you know, and I did sample it. And, uh-huh. you know, of course, with samples, uh-huh. you know, anybody could possibly have come up with the sample. Right. But in the back of my mind, uh-huh. I always felt like, you know, I think I think they might have got a hold of that remix. I said for Eric, if I do. <laughs> <laughs> with every producer or any DJ or anybody that makes music definitely has one of those stories. And, you know. But you can always look at it as, yo, you contributed to sparking the idea for somebody to take it and make this record that probably people still probably listen to that remix and probably still feel something and takes them back to a time period and it brings some joy to their life. So you don't always get paid for it. You don't always get credit for it, but you did impact somebody's life and you still are. So the music is timeless. Right. Okay. And the last thing we're going to go over and then then I'll let you go. Is just that that portion from from the end of payroll up to the the Ultimax era, and I think we'll be covered after that. All right. Okay. All so right. so um, after after payroll had disbanded, um, we were of course we found a missus after that. Ski introduced me to a missus. I'm missus. We had that whole. Season. That's that dude. Yes. Hey man, that I'm, song amazing, yo. Listen, mm-hmm. 
I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was a live version. I used to play it on the mix show all the time. Like the studio version was dope, but the label put this sampler out, and they had a live version that I'm um, distance had done at um at one of the showcases, and they recorded it. And yeah. live just sound yeah. it gave the song a whole brand new feel, man. Like it was already dope. But the live version, oh my goodness, man. Anybody ever hit a live version yeah, and put um, that song up against anything. That was that was uh Ill Style Live. Ill Style Live, man. God knows, man, that live version yeah. was ridiculous, man. Oh yeah. my God. And they had uh at that time when we were signed there, it was Buster Rhymes was coming out with his solo record at that time. Old, Old Dirty Bastard was coming with his solo record at that time. And Supernatural, who had just won the MC contest, was uh, coming out with his thing, Adolf Assassin. Entice so was, was with the Venoms. Entice was with the Venoms right. at this Entice time, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He just got with the Venoms. So it was a great time. And we actually were about to go out with Buster Rhymes as his opening act on tour. And whatnot before there was all kinds of chaos at the label and the project got dropped. But Omniscience at the time had uh, Rhyme of the Month um, in the Source magazine. He had just done the new music seminar. So he had a buzz going on and he was just making, he's from Bear Creek, North Carolina, but was making New York hip hop that was so raw that we were creating at that time. But after that deal didn't happen, we went back to Greensboro and we had started working with Ultimate Records. And when we started working with Ultimate Records, I went in there, they had a remix service. And I had went in there and did a uh, remix to one of their records and um, one of their issues that they put out. And they were so impressed with the production that I was doing that they basically, uh, I convinced them to start a record label and put out a group. And that's when we created the Funky Leftovers, which I was rapping. Um, Billy the Bower was also rapping it, and T Love was the DJ, but Omniscient was the ghostwriter. So he was oh, writing. Oh, he ghostwrote that. Had, yes, he wrote all of the all of the music. He was the ghostwriter, and we had uh, a modest hit with Quiet as Kept. Hold on, hold on, um, hold on. Let me on the let me let me give myself a shameless plug right quick. If you watch the video, <laughs> if you watch the video on YouTube and pause at twenty three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you see me stand beside K Nice yeah. Polo and Mix Master D. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I got on a white hat, turn sideways. <laughs> I appreciate it you. It was a moment. Go, go look for that video. It was a moment. Uh, we had everybody in town involved from the from uh, all the girls were there. Everybody that was doing hip hop was there. They had now at that time when we were on Archmans, they had their own recording studio. They uh, were the two-inch tape uh, machines and 24-track boards. They had their own mastering plant. They had their own record label. So it was a dream to be with them because you could create everything from making the records from start to finish. And we did a bunch of shows in North Carolina. And Polo was right across the way. He would play the records and the K-9s would play the records. And we got a deal uh, offer from Pendulum Records with Ruben Rodriguez, rest in peace. And at the time, Ultimate, they weren't, the owners weren't not very well versed in the music business. And they thought we should be getting more than, I think they offered us like $20,000, $30,000 for the single. 
and they were just going to put the single out as a single day well, and they would offer us an album deal for like 150K to do an album. And at the time, they were like, oh, this is a major label. They should be offering us like $60,000, $70,000 for the single. So they wouldn't do the deal. They wouldn't sign up on the deal. And so the deal didn't happen. Oh, and uh, the whole Ultimate era ended. But it was, uh, it was a great time of just really having the freedom to create in that space because we were there 24 hours a day where we would just work on music around the clock and then go out and do shows and things. So it was, it was a great time. Yeah, there was no spot like that in the area, man, where you could you nah, could press it up and it had state of the art yeah. everything in there. Like, yeah, yeah it was it was yeah. it was a, a step of, a step above every place else that you could record. You know, you yeah, got, shout out to Brad Hinkle and Les Massingale and Mark Roberts, man. That was uh, that was a, an amazing time in my development, and that's how I ended up meeting Benson Herbert and moving on to the next next phase of my career. Right. Right. Well, well, it's true, man. I think from from there on we can tie it in, right? Yes. Yes. We're good. All right. Hey, man. <laughs> okay. I'm, I apologize for that. I don't know what happened there, but nah. yeah, yeah. It's all good. It happens. It happens, man. As long as we can, we can, we got enough that we can document as much as story as possible. It's all good, man. Yep. Yep. So you know, this this is the point where I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to to wrapping it up, and we'll we'll edit and chop it up. Put the Put the front where it's supposed to be. You know what I'm saying, right? Uh, right. <clears throat> so, so now you're in the Billy Lennox era, mm-hmm. and and this is what I like to see. You know, I like to see you're talking about artist development. You know, it's it's not always somebody else stepping in and developing an artist. Some artists develop right. naturally over time, and and man, I'm I'm just glad to see that you have developed over time to touch all these different genres because like I said, we need that. It's been missing. And I think um Oh definitely. Yeah. Hey so I, I nah, have a man, hopefully hopefully it happens and people get to see it and it, it reaches the heights it's supposed to reach and people get inspired by it. And um it uh it does a thing because I think that we still as back artists have so much more to offer and and I think if you let us be eclectic, then that's when the real magic happens. Mm-hmm. So I was um, doing a little bit of research about you, <clears throat> and I came across an article. Uh, I think you did it with Hip Hop DX, and they asked you about the bad boy curse. And in and <laughs> um, yeah, you laugh so you remember this. Okay, so they talked about when you produced on Mace's second album, and then. Right before right. the release, Mace decided he wasn't going to do mm-hmm. rap anymore, so the label didn't put any um, capital behind right. the push for it. But it didn't stop right. you. And I think that's a, yeah. a, a testament of your versatility and your persistence. And I just wanted you to elaborate mm-hmm. on that, because if I remember correctly, um, um, Puff scrapped um, the producer circle at that time, but the next time he came back, uh, you were already working with Michael Jackson, and I think Puff was kind of surprised yeah. that you had moved on from there. Could could you just briefly oh, talk definitely. talk about your your um you know your perseverance and your um because we talked a lot about versatility and I noticed like you went from Little Kim to Will Smith to Boyz to Men to Beyonce to right. like all around 
you know, how, how, mm-hmm. like, where did that, that, that roundness, and I hate to use that term, but where did that roundness come from? Because you, you don't see that from a lot of I producers. I just really studying. you just studying, man. When you study, like, at the time, I would listen to, I was just diving into the catalogs of the Ozzy Brothers and Ohio Players and um, all of these soul acts and R&B acts from the past, and just really just studying, being a, a student of music and studying all these, great artists past and present, Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and all these different soul and R&B and rock acts in the past and then just bringing it forward and, and flipping them and, and, and adding my, my, take, uh, my take on it. But, but um, yeah, the, the, thing, the thing that happened with the, with the Mace thing is that, that um, I just always been, even back since payroll, I've just always been one of those people that just keeps going because I live for creative expression. And so uh, you don't always get to control what happens with the music once you create it. The artist can go left, the artist can quit or retire. The label cannot get it and not push it. You may not get the single on the album. A lot of times you have one of the best songs on the album. But because the, the other producers are bigger names than you, they end up pushing those records and your record kind of gets forgotten. But, but at the end of the day, it's just like, um, I just, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to make the music and have that experience. Whatever happens with the record afterwards, I don't really have control over, which is that's another reason why I moved into the artist space because now I can decide what happens to the music after it's created and I have a say so in it, which, you know, if you're just a producer, you don't really have that. But um, but the thing about it is, um, you got to just keep going, man. You got to keep going. You got to keep creating. You got to keep just remembering the joy you get out of being able to make the music. Like it's so hard. Like when I even look at the Billy Lennox project that I'm working on now, when I get an initial start and idea in my head and I start working on a song, mm-hmm. it takes like weeks to finish that song, and it goes through many different phases before you get to the final product. I was just listening to Scars today as I'm going through my hard drive and I'm hearing the earlier versions of my first Billy Lennox single, Scars, which sounds nothing like the final product. Because uh, also, when I was with Puffy, that was the first time I was actually collaborating with other producers on the record. Before that, I would produce the the record from top to finish, uh, top to bottom, right? Mm -hmm. Start to finish, I'm sorry, start to finish. When I worked with Puffy, that was the first time you may put the beat down. And when you come back, they added different elements to the music. They added different things to it. And at the time, I didn't get it. But now I realized that it was like, well, the reason why they were having so much success is because so many great minds were contributing to the production of the song and the, and, and the overall vision of where the song was going. It wasn't just one person's vision. It was well-established, well-talented, uh, well-respected and talented people adding to the vision of the song. And that's the way my records are now. I work with other producers on my record or musicians on my record. And so what my initial vision might be for the record is not going to be the final product because they're all bringing something that is adding to, to the soup of what you're making. And um, I think that's when uh, I learned that when I was working with Puffy. But um, yeah, man, so you, you can't, ever stop you can't ever let uh the business dictate um what your what your um what the outcome is going to be for your career you got to just keep creating find joy and passion in creating music and you're always 
never lose that passion to make music. Yeah, that's dope. Good stuff. That's dope. Mm-hmm. The first time I I used to have that same philosophy, produce the whole thing myself. And um, when I was working yeah. on music for my brother before he passed away, I was in the studio with Jocko. And mm-hmm. and that was the first time I ever worked with another producer on something that I originally was the brainchild for. Yeah. But at yeah. the end of the You'd day, yeah, at the end of the day, I went back and listened to it. I was like, you know, I think it, it added a lot to it. Because you know a mm-hmm. different a different set of ears just brings a makes right. it feel different. You know my mind state was yeah. you know if it had just been me by myself, it would have probably had a little more Wu Tangish feel to it mm-hmm. than what it ended right. up right. with. You know I think Jocko mm-hmm. added some some commercial appeal to what I already had. Right. You know. And, so, and, and the beauty of that is that sometimes they'll think of things that you wouldn't think of and add that to the song. And then sometimes they can be that person. Like I work a lot with guitar players where I can, things that I can't necessarily do on the guitar, I can get them to do it. So you can also use them to facilitate your ideas. So sometimes it's using them to facilitate your ideas or a combination of that and them adding things that you wouldn't add to the song to make it even, even greater. So, um, so collaboration is always good with people that you trust and people that you think that you get the get the vision. I always try to collaborate with people that are not afraid to try new things. I always look at it like it's recording. If we don't like it, we can always erase it. But I always, you know, you know, welcome people that I create with to like try some something different. Like try just try it. Let's see what we come up with. You know. Mm-hmm. And you gotta let them marinate for a while too. I I, I found myself that yeah. just be, I'm gonna naturally love most of what I do at first, but what I do is if right. I still love it a week from now, hmm. then right. it's it's good. But you know, I love everything when I first do it, but then you listen to it a week later, two weeks later, it's like ah, I could do better. Yeah, you know, so, I'm like that. I'm like that at night when I I create late at night. And when I listen to it first thing in the morning with fresh ears, it doesn't knock me over. Because when you're listening to it over and over, you start liking it. It's just like listening to a song on the radio that you're not really fond of. Mm-hmm. But if they play it enough times, eventually you start liking it a little bit. And so I do that late at night when I'm making music. But the next morning, if it doesn't hit me, I move on from it or I go back and change something. But I'm going through my hard drive today and I'm hearing songs that I created a year ago. And I'm listening to it with fresh ears. And I was like, oh, man, that's dope. Why did I not continue on with that idea and whatnot? So, right. you know, you never know. Well, you know? What, what's your process like now as, as far as creating? Because I know, you know, as long as you've been around, um, it has changed. And with the introductions of technology, mm-hmm. it's more convenient now. Mm-hmm. So what does that look right. like now? Uh, well, for me, I do a fusion of using live instrumentation with samples from Splice or something like that, or I'll listen to uh, classic rock or pop or just listen to new stuff that's coming out and see what inspires me. And then I'll go in and I'll lay the drums down and some guitars and bass. Then I have uh, go into Splice and add on to it and then start writing. So, uh, just a combination of a lot of different things that sparks uh, uh, my creative process now, but uh, it's a lot different than it was before because before I couldn't play anything. Now I'm actually mm. playing, so I can get my ideas out, and then I have other musicians that I work with 
that um, know exactly, you know, what I want to do or how I think. And because um, it's hard to find somebody. A lot of people play, but to find somebody that really gets what you do, mm-hmm. that's that's a whole different thing. Like, you know, it's very rare that you run across somebody that you guys speak the same language and think, think, you know, in the same space. I always try to create from left field now and just try to do something that's just different versus trying to make something that sounds like what everybody else is doing. Right, right. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you bearing with us all this time right here, man. Um, oh, good, man. Hey, this is uh, this has been, yeah, one of my favorite episodes right here, man. I'm, I'm, I thank you again. And, you know, not just you. I want to thank everybody who is a part of that whole payroll movement. Um you oh, know, man. you, no Ski, Roland, Naborn, I mean, K-Nice, B-Chill, mm-hmm. all y'all people mm-hmm. brought me in, and and I had a nice run in the area, too, and, I, and I'm so glad that I met all y'all cats, and y'all were always very welcoming and hospitable. Right, dude, that's what, it, that's, that's, that's what it's all about, man, just inspiring each other, and uh, our journeys inspiring each other, and our stick-to-itiveness. Um, inspiring each other, like even doing this podcast and giving us a platform to even tell our story and giving people a chance to hear it and get inspired by our journey or, or even what you're doing to even, you know, take this, this point of view with, with, uh, how you're doing your podcast. I think a lot of people, it's something that's needed, you know, and we're, we're still contributing to the culture. We're still contributing to uh, opening up minds and the optimism and the possibilities of doing something on a higher level. So uh, I appreciate you guys' passion for keeping the music and the story alive because, you know, like I said, hopefully it's inspiring somebody else to keep going. Just from North Carolina, it just was like, I I never thought I could do this before, you know? Right. Oh, and, and lastly, I know you're a fan of the SP, and I want to yeah. tell you a quick story. I had okay. I had one SP, and mm-hmm. the trigger buttons had started wearing out. And I don't know if you know, uh-huh. but back in the day, it was kind of hard to get those buttons. I ordered them from this spot in Germany, right? And a year later, right. they were still on back order, and I didn't get them. <laughs> so right. I bought another SP from Roland that hmm. he was oh, selling. Yeah. So I still have yeah. the one that I bought from Roland. But a year after I bought oh, wow. it, the buttons I ordered from Germany came in. So I have five brand new trigger buttons at my oh, house. So you still have the SP right now? I still have SP right now, but the one I have doesn't wow, need new wow. trigger buttons. So wow. should your oh, okay, SP okay, ever okay. come into disrepair, I'm just letting you know that I got five brand new trigger buttons. Okay, all right. You feel me? That's like, like you know, you you just don't. Yeah, you don't. You don't find them every day. You know what I'm saying? Right. Nah, and they don't make them anymore. I mean, they've done a they've done a reissue of it, but it's not the same. But it's hard to get those parts, man. Right, right. It took me two years for them things to come in. So I figured, you know, I I just let you know if you're still banging on the things and one of them don't hit like it's supposed (laughs) to, I would definitely let you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just let me know, man. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, man. We appreciate you, man. And uh, thank you very much for for giving us this time, and and um. You know your con- your contributions are duly noted, no man. Doubt. You know, no doubt, man. 
And nope. keep me locked in, y'all. Um, let me know when it comes out. Um, um, and also follow me on Instagram. Let's stay in touch, man. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. And um, shoot, okay. if you All still right. you still looking for music too, I might have some beats to throw your way, man. Some 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 good uh, stuff. Always, uh, always. I, I'm I'm eclectic. Contact fanatic at Gmail. Gmail. No doubt, right. no doubt. Appreciate you, man. All right, talk soon, man. All right, God bless. This is Capital City with Capital J. Well. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the one and only Rhythm Fanatic, a.k.a. Fanatic, a.k.a. Billy Lennox. Yes, sir. That was a dope one. I don't know if y'all noticing by now, you're hearing a lot of the same names over and over again. That should give you an example, uh, an idea of how impactful some of these people were. Like, some of everybody that's come through here is mentioning the same people over and over again. So we're not making this stuff up. These, um, you know, these stories are real. So, without any further ado, we're going to get on out of here. And uh, it's been the Capital City Podcast. Alongside main man, D.L. Glass. I'm Capital J, and we out of here, man. Enjoy yourself. And you can find the podcast everywhere you get podcasts. Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs>